Hi everyone, welcome to this next Isolation Insights event by the UK Interchanging Europe, this time on the economics of COVID and Brexit. And those of you who are regulars will remember that we did an initial event on this uh, some months ago and we, we promised you then that we'd do a follow-up. So we're pleased to be able to uh, do that. We have as ever a fantastic line of, of speakers. We've got Thomas Sampson from the LSE, Gemma Tetlow from the Institute of Government, Meredith Crowley, University of Cambridge and Ben Chu from the Independent. They're going to speak in that order. They're going to make sort of five to six minute remarks each. We'll have a discussion uh, among ourselves and then we'll be happy to take your questions, which you can submit in the usual way. I think today we're planning to run till 1.15, so we have a little bit longer for Q&A than we've had on some of these uh, events. So, Thomas, if you're ready and able, do you want to kick us off? Okay. Um, thanks, Anand. It's great to be here. Uh, so I was going to focus my comments on the ways in which I think from a kind of macroeconomic perspective, COVID and Brexit are, are in many ways very different types of economic shocks and what that means for thinking about how the effects of Brexit might play out uh, from next year onwards. Now, you know, obviously, as we've all seen, uh, COVID is a huge short-term shock, not just to the economy, but also to to health and to how we all lead our, our daily life. And it's kind of, you know, really upended everything, everything we thought we knew in the last six months. That said, the kind of central expectation at the moment is that the economic effects of COVID are likely to dissipate fairly quickly within the next couple of years. Um, UK GDP fell by around 20% in the uh, second quarter. We've probably already regained about half that uh, loss. Now the, you know, the recovery is likely to stall or perhaps even go into reverse for the remainder of this year with the uh, second wave hitting. But by the, you know, the end of 2022 at the very latest, it's likely that the economy will have made up most of the loss in, in output due to coronavirus and you know, though there may be some labor market scarring, which leads to longer term effects, it is unlikely that the, the, the longer run effects of COVID will be larger than the kind of low, low single digits. So, you know, big picture coronavirus is a, is a huge disruption today, but it is unlikely to have large long term effects. Uh, by contrast, you know, Brexit is, is very different, right? Even in the event that there is no deal, um, the short-term effects of Brexit next year are likely, I think, to be much smaller than what we've seen from, from coronavirus this year. Um, I anticipate there will be some disruption at the borders in January, which will be very, very visible, but not necessarily that important macroeconomically. Um, and depending on the type of deal we get, it's likely that some firms and, you know, and sectors will be particularly hard hit. There are going to be you know, big losers because of Brexit. But I do not anticipate that we will see kind of mass increases in unemployment due to, to Brexit. And it is, it is very possible that the kind of GDP movements in the first half of next year that you know, what's going on because of coronavirus is so large that it swamps any obvious effects of Brexit at that point. So in the short run, I think Brexit is much less 
economically important than coronavirus. But, right, and I, you know, I think this is the most important point I want to make. That doesn't mean that Brexit is a less important economic shock than coronavirus. And once we think, you know, in the, in the longer term, I think there's good reason to think that Brexit will actually be a much more important shock than, than COVID. Um, so, for example, if we look at the government's own projections, they put the cost of Brexit at, you know, around 5% if there is a deal, at around 7.5% if there's no deal. Uh, clearly, those estimates come with a lot of uncertainty. But whatever way you look at them, they are larger and, you know, probably many times larger than the likely long run costs of coronavirus. Um, when you have, you know, shocks that have these very different profiles, it is difficult to say, you know, which is the, the, the bigger shock. But one thing you can do is say, you know, if you, if you add up the effects of coronavirus and Brexit on UK output in all future periods with some appropriate discounting, uh, which is an exercise kind of we've done it for, for UK and a changing Europe, the effect of Brexit on the net present value of UK output is two, likely to be two to three times larger than coronavirus based on current forecasts. Uh, so at least kind of, you know, viewed through that lens, Brexit is, you know, you know, the bigger shock. That said, these, you know, Brexit effects are likely to emerge slowly over time for the most part. So though, you know, from the, you know, I think if we're sitting here in 2035, Brexit would probably matter more for what the state of the UK economy then, but it is going to take some time before that is the case. You know, and what that means is that I think Brexit will not have a visible effect on the economy in the near term in the way that coronavirus had, and that's going to make it harder for people to disentangle, you know, as the economy changes due to Brexit, is, is this really a Brexit effect or is it something else that's going on? Um, we've already seen a slowdown in UK growth since the referendum. Um, kind of the best estimates we have at that, but the cost per person in terms of lower output because of the referendum, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 pounds per person. You know, that's, that's a fairly substantial cost, but because it has kind of emerged gradually, I think for most people, it hasn't been obvious that there has been this slowdown. Uh, so just kind of, you know, finishing off my comments, what I think will be really interesting to see from January onwards, as we enter into the kind of implementation phase of Brexit, will be, you know, how, how quickly does the economy respond to Brexit? I think it will be relatively slow, certainly compared to COVID, but we don't know exactly how fast those changes are going to be. And how, how will the kind of lived reality of Brexit, as it starts to affect people's daily lives, affect perception of the costs and benefits of, of, of Brexit? Will there be kind of a broader awareness of what Brexit is doing into the economy? Or will it all get lost in the kind of the, the, the noise that coronavirus is uh, creating? And I don't really know at this stage what the answer to that question is. So I'll leave it there for now. Thank you. Thanks so much, Thomas. I do want to come back to this issue of what people notice and what people think was responsible for what uh, at some point. But for the moment, I might ask you all this. Are you strongly of a V uh, state of mind then about the recovery from COVID? Are you still thinking V-shaped? 
Um, I would say kind of interrupted V, if, if, if we know what that means in the sense that, you know, I think relative to the kind of the bottom, we're going to recover quite quickly, but we're not going to get everything back. And it's likely that the second wave means we might flatline for a while before we get, uh, get back close to where we originally, uh, originally were. Okay, brilliant. Uh, just to remind everyone, you can submit your questions on Slido. You can vote for questions, so I know which ones to be asking. Uh, and maybe those people who are texting me, telling me I look like John McDonnell in my jumper might like to do that instead. Over to you, Gemma. Thanks, Anand. Um, so I was asked to say a bit about the government's economic measures to address the impact of COVID and what the added impact of Brexit on top of all of that might be. Um, as Thomas has outlined, COVID and the associated economic restrictions have obviously had a major impact on the UK economy this year. Um, and there could be some lasting negative impact um, as well, um, although Thomas suggests that may not be as big as the lasting economic impacts from Brexit. Um, and the government has rolled out this year in response to that COVID impact, a huge package of support for businesses and households to try to cushion the blow and to try to minimise any of that long-term damage. Um, it's become something of a cliche to describe this as unprecedented, but what the government has done this year really is unlike anything that we are used to seeing the UK government doing in terms of using uh, fiscal power to support the private sector. And just taking into account the policies that had been announced up to the middle of September, the government had up to that point spent or, or announced policies that would total um, over £190 billion of extra um, public spending this year, including extra money for public services, direct support for households through things like the coronavirus job retention scheme and direct support for businesses, including things like the subsidised loan schemes. Um, and if you add on top of that what was announced then in the Chancellor's Winter Economic Plan, you'd come up with an even bigger figure. Um, the Treasury and the Chancellor are clearly starting to move to a phase of trying to withdraw support and refocus um, that support. Some of the loan schemes are going to close to new applications in early November. The coronavirus job retention scheme will end at the end of October and be replaced by a new, less generous job support scheme. And the Chancellor has explicitly said he's trying to refocus support on what he terms viable jobs and shifting policy instead towards things like retraining programmes and incentives to hire new workers, rather than simply subsidising existing jobs, as the government did in the early months of the crisis. But the government is already starting to have to acknowledge that it can't pull back as quickly as probably the Treasury had hoped that it would be able to some weeks or months ago. The Chancellor has extended some of the support, um, including things like um, extending the time period that businesses will have to pay their VAT um, bills, extending the VAT cut for the hospitality sector all the way through to the end of this financial year, rather than ending in January as had originally been planned. And he's also announced more recently new additional support measures for areas of the country and sectors that continue to be affected by local lockdowns and by ongoing national closures of things like nightclubs. Um, the pressures of COVID um, are then going to be added to at the end of the year by the disruption of Brexit. Um, and really deal or no deal, um, businesses will face additional costs in trading with the EU once the tr transition period ends. I'm sure Meredith will say um, much more about this. Um, on paper, uh, at this stage, many of those changes that 
businesses face are going to be quite similar, whether we're talking about a deal or a no deal. There will be extra forms to fill in, extra checks to be made on goods crossing the border. Um, but in practice, there probably would be benefits um, from a deal that might ease some of those um, costs on businesses. Um, but I think we, we now know that the pressures posed by Brexit are probably going to be more severe at the end of this year than they might have been without COVID, simply because of the fact that businesses have not had the time or money to prepare for Brexit in the way that they might have done had they not also been dealing this year with the disruption of COVID. So the Treasury faces a really difficult task over the next few months of calibrating policy correctly. And they would have had a difficult task in calibrating policies simply to deal with Brexit, they would have had a difficult task simply calibrating it to deal appropriately with COVID and putting those two things together just makes the task all that much harder. Um, the Chancellor is pretty keen to ensure that the taxpayer doesn't prop up businesses that have no long-term future, but it's going to be difficult for them to identify which businesses will be able to survive COVID, even if they're struggling now, and similarly, which businesses might be able to survive Brexit, um, particularly as we don't actually know exactly what the sort of long term form of Brexit is going to be at this stage, as we don't we haven't yet seen any details of a deal if there is one coming. And so there may be some businesses that could survive COVID, some that could survive Brexit, um, but perhaps not both. Um, and the Treasury really wants in the coming months to try and target its support on those that can survive both those things. Um, but it's obviously going to be impossible for them to pick those winners in advance. And as we start to gather evidence on how businesses are performing over the next few months, as Thomas alluded to, it's going to be very hard to unpick what it is that's causing weak business performance, whether it's just that businesses are struggling with ongoing COVID restrictions, whether they're struggling temporarily with Brexit um, costs, but could adjust to them in the end, or whether for one or other of those reasons, businesses actually face really long-term problems and really aren't viable in the longer term. And so the Treasury faces a really difficult task of trying to decide how to help businesses in the coming months and how generous to be and to what types of businesses. And the, the difficulty it faces is that there really are costs of doing too much and costs of doing too little. If the Treasury is too generous to businesses, it risks wasting taxpayer money, propping up businesses that have no long-term competitive future. That money could be better spent elsewhere in the economy, and the economy could potentially grow more strongly by simply allowing those weaker firms to go under, be replaced by stronger competitors, and allow workers to find new jobs elsewhere in jobs with better prospects. On the other hand, um, they're are also potentially costs of doing too little um, by the government. If good quality firms are allowed to go under, and particularly if lots of people end up long-term unemployed because there aren't at this stage new jobs for them to go to, or if retraining programmes are ineffective at uh, reallocating people from the jobs that they're in at the moment um, to new jobs that may be coming online, then that could place a long-term drag on UK economic growth, um, and that would have uh, long-term costs for all of us. So uh, I guess to sum up, the, the decisions that the government is going to have to make in the next few weeks uh, about how to manage COVID, about how to what to do about the UK's future trading relationship with the EU and what sort of deal to be willing to sign up to there, 
and the extent to which the government continues to support businesses and households in the UK to try and cushion both of those things will have lasting impacts on the UK's future economic growth. Um, and it's a really difficult set of decisions for the government to know exactly how to tailor its um, support appropriately. Thanks, Gemma. Do you think do you think the Treasury has the bandwidth to be able to think strategically or not? I mean, it seems to me that so much energy has been taken up with firefighting at the moment, not least because you have these sort of localised outbreaks, localised measures imposed. Is there really space at the same time to formulate a vision for the economy in the medium term that allows you to choose where to invest your resources? Or is that just sort of overly optimistic thinking? I mean, I think in a sense, the Treasury has seems to perform pretty well so far in uh, doing very quick thinking and being quite innovative in its policy responses to COVID. But I, I, take, I do agree with you that I think the problem, the extra problem that Brexit kind of layers over it is that whereas with COVID, you might be thinking about how do we help um, businesses to weather the COVID storm. And if Thomas is right, that a lot of COVID is really a short term impact rather than having a, a lasting drag, then that pushes you towards just doing what you can to keep things going until those things um, go away. But Brexit kind of layers over a separate set of um, sort of existential questions for some businesses in the UK that may mean they have no long-term future and kind of forces the Treasury to have to think about the long-term future of those businesses. And therefore, you don't necessarily want to be supporting those businesses with very generous COVID support if actually Brexit is going to mean that they aren't going to be there longer term. And that does make it much more difficult for the Treasury. And I think I think you're right. Yeah. They will have less bandwidth to figure that out in the world of COVID than they would have done otherwise. And, and it seems to me that there are some acute trade-offs between the immediate and the medium term. I mean, it might be that a government that is as infatuated with technology as parts of this government seems to be might welcome home working and say, actually, if we're all going to use technology to introduce home working, that could be part of the strategy. But at the same time, you want to keep prep going. So you want to encourage people to go back to the office. I mean, it just seems to me sort of impossible to think what much beyond the immediate term at the moment, given the scale of the problem. But yeah, so I mean, there's a bit of attention in the government's uh, response and quite how it, I mean, I, I agree the sort of the, the messages that came out over the summer about getting back to the offices and going back out to eating did seem to be a pushback to let's just go back to the normal we had before rather than... Um, baking in the changes to ways of working that we've had in future. Um, that's, I guess, the easier uh, way out of this, because any sort of structural adjustment will undoubtedly take time to come through and have at least short-term pain, even if it would have long-term benefits. Okay. Are you are you on the side of a sort of slightly odd-shaped V as well, then? You're still thinking V-shaped? Um, so I think the shape of economic recovery has to very much depend on the profile of the disease transmission from here, how effectively we can keep that under control. Uh, so I think I'm, as an economist, probably poorly placed to judge what how that is going to play out. And therefore, I think it's difficult to know what the economic impact is going to be. All right. Cheers. Uh, Meredith? Um, OK, so I'll pick up on some of the themes that both Thomas and Gemma have already touched on. And so I think the first thing that Thomas was trying to draw an important distinction was the short term impacts of COVID being quite severe versus um, the long the short term effects of Brexit being kind of modest, but in the long term, Brexit being potentially much more damaging. And so 
also picking up on what Gemma said about business survivability, I'd like to kind of trace the pattern of how these two things are interlinked. And in particular, the thing that really worries me is that come the winter, I think the COVID shock is going to be worse because I think we're going to potentially have more disease transmission. That's going to slow things down more. And at the same time, we're going to have the Brexit shock hitting. And if we don't have a deal in place, it could be very bad. If we do have a deal in place, it will be more modest and more um, manageable. But just a couple of facts to throw out. So one of the ways in which a permanent economic shock like Brexit affects economic activity is it changes the, the incentives and the costs facing firms. And so one of the things we observed back in 2016 was just the threat of higher import tariffs for British firms exporting to the EU. That reduced entry of British firms in the beginning of sales to Europe. And it also induced increased exit in the sense that some British firms that were exporting to the EU exited in 2016. And we can link that very closely to the magnitude of the tariffs they might face under no deal. And so there was a roughly 5% decline in entry, 6% decline in exit in 2016. And so that's one of the mechanisms by which we get reduced economic activity. These, these folks that are exiting tend to be the more fragile firms, right? The ones with the less secure business plans in place. So that's sort of a worry about Brexit coming in with more paperwork is gonna push the firms that are on the edge over the edge and so they're gonna cease operating with Europe. So if we think about where we are right now, if we look, um, ONS just put out, you know, statistics for Q2 on trade, as well as for August um, 2020 on trade. And in August 2020, trade with the EU, our British exports to the EU were down 15% over a year ago, and trade with extra EU partners, so non-EU countries, was down 19%. So, you know, roughly we lost about a fifth of, of trade value due to COVID um, right now. And so the question is, well, how can, wh what's going to happen going forward? So, yes, this this kind of COVID shock should be temporary, but in terms of thinking about how individual businesses were doing in September, um, ONS has been doing a business survey trying to assess the impacts of COVID at a high frequency. And they're asking businesses, are you operational? And then if you're operational, how are your revenues? And can you survive three months? And one of the things that to me was very disturbing in this recent release is that 43% um, of man, so, the, the improvement is that relative to June in um, early September, about 86% of businesses surveyed said they were operating. But within manufacturing, 43% of businesses in the UK that were operational and replying to the survey said that in early September, their revenues had gone down. So there's just a huge decrease in turnover for these firms. Um, transportation and storage industry, which is also related to trade and in manufacturing of goods, they had 45% of businesses saying their turnover had decreased in September. So the, the economy is going into the winter and it's going into Brexit in a very weak position. So I think this is something to be really aware of. You know, COVID may be temporary, but these businesses are very fragile right now. And particularly one that was very worrisome to me is the ONS asked firms, well, what's your confidence that you can survive the next three months and not exit you know, entirely permanently? 20% of manufacturing firms in the UK said they are not confident that they can survive for three months. So 
um, you know, one third said they had moderate confidence that they could survive for three months. And then 36% said they had high confidence. So there's a sector of the economy, you know, that's manufacturing goods and it's tightly tra involved in trade, both with the EU and with other extra EU countries that are in pretty good, you know, pretty reasonable shape despite COVID. Um, but we've got, you know, a number of sectors where things are really going badly, you know, and if you think about where are UK exports, where have they really been hit? Mechanical appliances, transportation equipment, so motor vehicles and aircraft. So these are, are kind of high paying jobs. They've really been hit. And the question is, how will all of these sort of small manufacturers that feed into our, you know, transportation equipment supply chain, how well can they survive if we end up with, you know, a sort of no deal Brexit? And the concern is that we know that these additional costs of paperwork, trying to get things across borders, they're, they're difficult. So maybe it's fine if some businesses that really aren't very viable exit, you know, so that their workers can move into new industries, you know, capital can reallocate. But there's a, a real concern here that we're losing a lot of human capital in these particular sectors of the economy. And that the combination of the negative demand shock from COVID combined with the additional costs and paperwork associated with Brexit is going to lead, you know, firms within continental Europe to say, okay, well, you know, we've reduced our sales right now. So we're going to reduce our import sourcing, input sourcing from Britain. And then after Brexit, when demand picks up, they're going to have to say, well, should I source this part from another firm within Europe where I have no costs associated with doing business, or should I go back to the UK? And I think a real concern is that if the business relationship is temporarily suspended due to COVID, you know, where are we going to be in April 2021? Are firms in continental Europe going to want to turn to British partners to continue, you know, when they rebuild their supply chains? Or are they going to say, you know what, the cost, the hassle, it's too much, and we're just going to sever that? And I think that's where we're going to see what Thomas was describing is this negative long-term impact of Brexit. It's going to come through these mechanisms. And the concern is that the COVID shock will end, but the permanent scarring associated with COVID plus Brexit might really lead to these sort of severe permanent effects where we have a, a less integrated relationship with Europe going forward. Thanks, Meredith. I remember the sort of the early stages of uh, the COVID crisis, well, sort of, of lockdown. David Davis suggested that actually, I don't think he said this was a blessing in disguise, but what I think he said was that basically we have depressed trade levels. What better time could there be to leave uh, the transition phase when trade is already depressed and start to sort of recalibrate our economy in those circumstances, is there any truth in that? That actually, if you have lower levels of trade because of the pandemic, it might be quite a good time to be doing Brexit? So um, only if you don't, so when there's less economic activity, there's less need for government management of things like borders. <laughs> there's less work for people working in revenue collection because there's less economic activity, but that's not a solution to the problem. I think the real concern is that what we, the, the real worry is that if we have less economic activity, the question is how will the economy recover and what are the mechanisms and pathways by which businesses which have a big revenue hit from COVID are able to recover? And traditionally, you know, for the last 40 years, a British firm, you know, trying to recover from a recession could look to markets in Europe and try to sell their goods to 
customers in Europe, you know, with very little bureaucratic interference. So now coming out of that, there's, we hope, you know, if there's a deal, British producers will still have access to European customers. But the question is, if you're a, a customer in France and you need a part to go into something you're making, is it going to be easier for you to turn to a, a Dutch firm or are you going to turn to a British firm? And the question is on the margin where these things can really be quite damaging if you've got a very competitive industry, that French firm might say, you know what, the British guy was supplying me great product for many years, but you know what, now that I've got to rethink my contracts, maybe I should just turn to the Netherlands. And so I, I think that's where um, it's, it's very misguided to say um, this is a great time to to rebuild relationships. You don't really want to rebuild relationships in the middle of like the worst economic recession in a hundred years. That was very diplomatic. Thank you. Ben. Thank you, Anna, and, uh, and thank you for uh, to UK and Changing Europe for having me back on. It's great to have this digital reunion and the way things are going. We're probably going to have uh, even more of them in the future. Uh, so uh, I was asked to look at where, as last time, uh, where are we on public opinion uh, on the economics of Brexit and COVID and also what's the media's role in communicating the economics of it all to the public? Well, a natural place to start is to look at what the opinion polls are showing. Uh, on Brexit itself, are Remainers uh, coming to terms with the reality of Brexit? Now it's actually formally done, at least legally done, uh, although we're still obviously in the transition period. And are Brexiteers getting any regrets? Well, uh, YouGov did some polling over the summer and they found that pretty much 85% of Remain voters still think it was wrong uh, to leave the EU and 85% of Brexiteers still think it was right. Very similar proportions to the polling they did in October 2019. Uh, I note that the UK and the Changing Europe's own John Curtis has concluded that the polling does not suggest there's been a dramatic shift of attitude in either direction. People are deeply divided and largely entrenched in their views. When if John thinks that, who am I to take issue with it? But what about the interactions between the possibility of a no-deal Brexit and COVID? Has that shaped public perceptions at all. Uh, you may remember that in our last uh, uh, Brexit isolation insight event over the summer, I floated the idea that the fact of economic calamity this year might influence people's willingness to take economic risks, that economics could, if you like, become a bit more salient than identity and culture wars in people's views on public policy, including Brexit. So do we have any evidence for that? Well, not directly, but there was a study by the research uh, consultancy Quadrangle in uh, July, which suggested around 40% of Britons have less confidence now in the UK's ability to handle a no-deal Brexit following the country's response to the coronavirus crisis. And that contrasts with about 25% who said they had more confidence. So I think those findings suggest that the government's competence rather than just its ideological orientation might be gaining a bit more salience and that might be influencing uh, the framing of the Brexit debate. Uh, and since then, of course, since July, we've had uh, revelations about the possibility of border checks in Kent for lorry drivers and contentious new plans for lorry parks around the country. So that might have uh, changed perceptions a bit more. But a caveat, of course, people can still be um, people can still be in favour of something, even if they fear that it's going to be handled incompetently. So we shouldn't read too much into that. 
Uh, quadrangles polling also found something of an age divide in the attitude to the trade-off on COVID, with older people, particularly retirees, being less likely to agree that the government has been too concerned with health rather than the economy uh, in, their, in their handling of the crisis. And younger people are more likely to agree uh, that with that proposition that um, health has been put too high in priorities versus the economy. Uh, perhaps that's not surprising given that young people, as we know, have been much harder hit economically than uh, older people uh, this year. Yet the reality is that, in truth, there's pretty high levels of agreement across all age groups that health, that the government is right to put health at a higher priority, in the, at least in the short term, than the economy. Now, what about those culture wars? Um, there was an interesting poll for uh, Demos uh, in August, which found that around half of mask wearers in Britain have severely, sorry, more than half of mask wearers in Britain have severely negative views towards non-mask wearers. Uh, and a large majority of people who did not break the lockdown rules had very negative views about people who did break the lockdown rules. Uh, in comparison, this same polling found that um, only about a third of Remainers think people who voted for Brexit are bad people uh, and a quarter think they are good people. Uh, and Leavers as well, a third, a third of Leavers say they felt positively about Remainers. Now, this was interpreted by Demos as suggesting that COVID is now becoming more socially divisive than Brexit or Brexit is the new COVID, uh, co sorry, COVID is the new Brexit, uh, as Vice News put it in their interpretation of the results. Well, perhaps, maybe, maybe not. Uh, I would say, remember that we've had 10 months of COVID uh, well, we've had uh, four plus years of Brexit. So let's wait and see uh, uh, before jumping to that conclusion. But I think there is evidence, sadly, that COVID is becoming part of the uh, identity, politics, culture war divides, at least at the fringes. Uh, and if you want a flavour of that, well, just log on to social media and you'll see it in the debates about masks and herd immunity. Um, now, that might be used to, dis uh, to suggest that Brexit wasn't the cause of those cultural divisions, but played into them. That's an, a very interesting discussion, I think. Um, incidentally, while I think the media, the print press, has played a big role in turning Brexit into a culture war, having been pretty much nowhere on the public radar uh, before, um, you know, before the referendum, I think that's less true over COVID, actually. There was no clear line from the right-wing press during the first lockdown, uh, and we're starting to see resistance now to more restrictions uh, health restrictions from the Daily Mail and the Telegraph, um, perhaps motivated by concerns over lost advertising revenue for those papers. But polling does suggest that the, the public is still very much in favour of restrictions. And, and as you probably saw, a new YouGov poll uh, yesterday showed a majority were in favour of a circuit breaker lockdown. Uh, as uh, advocated by scientists and now Labour. And a clear majority of both Labour and Conservative voters were in favour of it. Now, a further point about the media's uh, role in Brexit coverage this year. I've noticed um, there's been ominous, ominously little appreciation among the public uh, of the extent to which even, and Gemma touched on this, even a Brexit deal uh, before the transition ends in January means economic damage and business disruption. Um, so you can see that from the desperation of hauliers recently uh, to make it clear that the disruption uh, coming from the new border checks co is coming from the new border checks and paperwork in January, no matter what you know if we get a deal or not. And you can see that in the um, the shock about the recent the shock 
uh, about people about the impacts on the car industry from the new rules of origin that are going to come in no matter what, uh, no matter even if we have a deal. Uh, and you can see it, I think, also in the um, the recent statement from the business secretary, Alex Sharma, this week, uh, aimed at businesses, highlighting the guaranteed changes that are coming uh, to trading arrangements from the 1st of January. Um, so we all know, of course, that the, the past was sold on the kind of arrangement which could have addressed and alleviated these problems long ago, i.e. the UK remaining in the customs union, remaining uh, in the single market. But amongst firms and the general public, uh, it's still, I think, coming as an unpleasant surprise, even though we are, um, of course, only months away from it. Now, that's plainly a communications failure from the government, however much they may now be trying to blame businesses for being unprepared or remainers for confusing people with their campaign for a second uh, referendum or whatever. I, I think the fault is largely the government's, and I suspect we could probably agree on that. But there's... Um, arguably a collective media failure too here, I think. Now, specialist trade and economics reporters did, of course, emphasise this inevitable uh, border friction that was coming. Less so political reporters uh, who tended to focus, I think, earlier this year on the question of whether or not there would be an extension or not, uh, with the sort of the implication that for businesses that was the, the key question. So, Given the prominence of lobby journalists uh, and the view of, I've experienced it, many editors, that everything must, in a sense, go through politics, I do think that's a problem. It's not a problem to which I have a simple uh, off-the-shelf oven-ready solution, but I do think it will involve thinking hard about how media addresses, the media collectively addresses these economic and business issues. And, and I probably would say this, of course, but I think a big part of the answer is likely to be less politics, if you like, and more economics, less generalism, more specialism, and dare I say it, more expertise as well. Thanks, Ben. Just on one point you made, is it is it a failing of the government's messaging or isn't it just inherent in the nature of the government's messaging? That's to say, the government is anxious to portray any deal it gets as a fantastic deal. I mean, we know how this government operates. But if you're doing that, you can't at the same time say, here's a fantastic deal. Oh, and incidentally, it's going to be a nightmare for you. Because <laughs> so isn't it, isn't it sort of just an intrinsic part of what the government's trying to do is if it has to sell this deal as a good thing, it can't at the same time get businesses to take this as seriously as they need to. Yeah, well, I think you... There might be an element of that, but I think pretty clearly they were trying to get the message out from certainly from spring last year that they wanted firms, companies that did cross border trade to apply for EORI numbers. Or, you know, there was a big campaign, a big campaign for them to uh, hire and you know learn how the new customs arrangements would work. And that really hasn't cut through. And I think you're seeing that in, as I said, uh, Alok Sharma's statement this week. And I think if you look back at those campaigns that business had to get Brexit, get ready for Brexit, I think the returns of that have been pretty poor, I would argue. No, no, I'd agree. And I think the startling thing that Michael Goh came out with in Parliament when he cited some ridiculously high number of businesses who thought that transition would be extended now mm. uh, was, was a real eye-opener. Now, just on your point about the media, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because... Tom, Thomas's argument is that the Brexit impact will be greater but longer term. 
But it strikes me that politically, the moment it starts being longer term, it's far, far harder to draw that causal connection between a decision which was now made in 2016, even if only being implemented now, and effects. Is that a real ch- Is that something that can be addressed effectively? Well, it's very difficult to address it. And I think this comes back to something I said in the last Isolation uh, Insight event, which is that the media has a real problem communicating counterfactuals, i.e. telling you what... Uh, articulating the problem of a, an economic loss relative to what other, would otherwise would have happened. You know, people understand a 20% collapse in activity and a surge in unemployment as an economic cost. That's what we've had this year. It's much mm-hmm. harder to convey that as, uh, you know, a loss of 5 to 8% of GDP over 15 years and less employment growth etc than we otherwise would have had but you know this is why this is the central challenge uh for for economics media uh for the you know for the media to communicate the economics of it and i really don't think we're doing as good enough a good a job as we should be okay the, the most popular question is from uh keith mcdonald who's obviously not a fan of this government's way of governing but i'm gonna try and rephrase it a little bit which is are you surprised the way that Brexit is being handled? That is to say, the lack of input, it seems, that companies, economic sort of, that firms are having into this. This seems to be a very centralised, very political sort of decision making about the deal we get that just doesn't seem to take the practicalities of the economics of this into account. I mean, I suppose we've got used to it now, but sort of standing back a bit, does, I mean, particularly, you know, Meredith, you're, you're North American, looking at the way these policies are made, do you sort of think, wow, why aren't they involving the people who are going to be affected more in these sort of decisions? So uh, I'll say I think that they're making a move gradually in the right direction. So I think this has been a problem since the start of the Brexit process in 2016 is when it came online, there was sort of, you know, in some sense, government was so surprised three years ago, didn't, you know, that this was what the result was. Then it was a question of, well, how do we develop a whole process for taking on board business input. And I think now that they've established a department for international trade in different, you know, as they're thinking about developing new trade agreements, they are starting to bring in practice, you know, business people, consumers in various different groups. Um, You know, they're looking at that for the future of agriculture, for example. But I think that the problem is that we're already in 2020 and something that we would have liked to have ideally seen set up in 2016 has just taken a really long time to get going. Um, so yeah, certainly in North America, um, businesses have driven trade policy design for you know decades. And actually the criticism there is that there wasn't enough weight given to consumer groups. So the change that we've seen in US trade policy making is trying to get more weight given to groups representing workers and individual consumers. So, but I think, yes, it's a problem that it's taken so long to get business input fed in formally across a broad swath of businesses and not just individual people who happen to be, you know, close to particular um, members of parliament or particular ministers. Ben. Yeah, I think a big part of the problem is that this government, and well, people at the top of this government in particular, seem to regard anyone who, who raises a problem, who, who says there's an issue here, uh, they regard them as sort of ideological enemies, sort of people who are trying to undermine the Brexit project rather than people who are raising serious concerns and trying to be constructive. So there's that, that instinct is to sort of say, uh, you know, that you're trying to undermine us 
ideologically you're trying to disrupt the whole project your remainers and there's a very much a, a sort of um jacobin-esque uh intolerance for this kind of feedback from business and you speak to these business groups and you do get the impression that uh this is the you know the uh, critical constructive comments and advice are not well received that's the big part of the problem do you think any of you i suppose it's fair to say we sort of swung from one extreme to the other i mean i, I recall sort of back in the sort of early part of this century, just assuming that if the city wanted something, that would be what the government did, because the government listened to, you know, influential financial houses, disproportionate to anyone else. And now we seem to have gone to another extreme of the spectrum, where, as, as Ben says, everything is political, and anyone who seems to disagree on the politics is seen as somehow unpatriotic rather than constructive. I mean, our political economy seems to fundamentally altered. Uh, does anyone else want to chip in on this? I know that wasn't really a question. Just uh, not quite on the question you just posed, but I mean, I think there is a point which I guess Meredith was getting at that um, this government is supposed to be delivering on the vote for Brexit. Um, whilst obviously it may, you want to take on board businesses' perspective on what the implications might be, um, that shouldn't be the only voice that the government is listening to because the general public have other things that they want to achieve that aren't simply having the easiest business environment for particular business groups um, who are talking to the government. So it's not, I don't think it's totally wrong that the government should be listening to those voices, but perhaps not delivering everything that every business group um, says would be needed to ease their business environment. Having said that, I think that you can see some kind of uh, unfortunate political economy uh, things playing out with things like the amount of weight being put on uh, the fishing industry, for example. There are, I mean, lots of reasons why that's probably become a prominent issue, but in terms of its importance to the UK economy and the number of people who generate their livelihoods from that, it's very, very small compared to the weight that it has had in the debate. And part of that must relate to the fact that that interest group is quite concentrated so it can have an outsized impact in within parliament because uh, it's concentrated within particular constituencies with particular voices um, so I guess that's why you see the sort of uh, that's not probably reflecting the average views of the uh, UK population as a whole. Well, I feel compelled to say that the French are every bit as economically irrational as us when it comes to fish at the moment. So it's not, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't limit, limited to us. Thomas and, no. and Meredith, Michael reckons that you are disagreeing with each other in the sense that he points out that Meredith is talking about severe permanent effects of COVID and Brexit versus Thomas's relatively sanguine assessment of the impact of the pandemic. I think Michael in particular was taken by what he sees as your undue optimism about how quickly we recover from the pandemic, Thomson, uh, Thomas. Is there anything you want to add about that? Is, is your optimism misplaced? Are you optimistic? I, mean, I think it's, it's certainly fair to say that there is a, a huge amount of uncertainty at this stage about exactly what the current course of the pandemic will, the future course of the pandemic will look like. I, I mean, I, I totally agree with the point Gemma made that the the economic consequences of COVID will will follow from what the, the health the future health path of the disease looks like. Um, you know whether a vaccine is developed, how quickly it's 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 developed. So I think you know my 
my thinking is kind of informed by what you know sort of most economic forecasts are saying at the moment but if it takes longer to develop a vaccine than that than expected the effects of covid will be will be longer lasting but still you know at, i think at some point the disease in one way or another will cease to be a problem that shuts down daily life and at that point we you know the economy will inevitably bounce back um i don't think i was disagreeing with meredith i certainly wasn't intending to um in that you know if, if i understood her point correctly it is that because of the some of the financial stresses firms are under as a result of covid this could exacerbate some of the brexit effects and cause firms to become uh, you know uncompetitive and to shut down faster than they might otherwise do which i think is is definitely the the case so i think there there is potentially an interaction there between covid and brexit which i didn't talk about in my remarks but which through which kind of covid might hasten some of the effects of brexit and also mean some firms that otherwise would have been able to survive brexit uh won't be won't be able to so i i, I would agree with meredith on that point the whole point of having four economists was to have six contradictory opinions and you're letting me down very badly at the moment Meredith, do you want to add something to that? No, I, I guess I hadn't meant to disagree with Thomas. I think one of the statistics he quoted was the government's own report from, I think he was quoting this November 2018 study, showed this loss. If if a deal is, is done and a good deal, we're looking at a long-term loss to the UK economy of 5% of GDP. And I guess my concern, if I were going to quantify it, is we don't really know how damaging COVID will be, but I'm concerned that actually the long-term impact would, you know, with a deal given COVID is going to be worse than that loss of 5%. And I think as Gemma was saying, you know, the disease path, we don't know very much about. And so the concern is, you know, it, in, in the world, I hope we end up in where we have a vaccine and come next summer, you know, the, the forward treatment of COVID is just going to be about people get a lot of shots, you know, and we just have to produce this vaccine and that's it. That would be great. And then I think the recovery, you know, we can move forward. The concern is that actually that the disease is not that well contained and we're gonna go through these cycles where it's gonna be difficult to develop a vaccine every year. And so we're gonna have more restrictions on mobility. And so this is gonna have a longer term sort of drag on economic activity in the same way that, you know, it's just a cost of doing business. If COVID increases the cost of doing business for all of us, um, that could, you know, be another negative impact. But we don't know. Maybe it, it'll be better. Go on, Ben. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, I agree with that. Um, there is a view that the um, COVID impact could be po positive for UK productivity growth in the sense that it in, in, increased this shift to digitalization. Um, and that could bring some benefits in the long term. Now, I, I think that's probably, um, well, we don't know yet, obviously, but it is worth factoring in there when we're thinking about long term effects, long term dynamic effects uh, of this crisis. Just the, there are quite a lot of questions coming in, sort of digging into the, the economics, sort of talking about which specific sectors and regions might be more, more affected. I'll come on to those. But I want to just turn internationally for a, for a second and ask two things. I mean, firstly, one of the great motivators for the UK to join the European Union was a perception comparatively we weren't doing as well as the six. Uh, and I wonder whether it's those sort of comparative data that might prove instructive in terms of the impact of Brexit. Do we think that sort of looking at how 
EU economies perform compared to us might might be the the sort of the, the crucial set of data. And secondly, why is it that we see these studies suggesting that the economic impact of COVID here is going to be worse than it is elsewhere amongst OECD countries? That's for any of you. Um, we'll rush. On the comparative data, I, I think that is probably exactly right that the, as Ben said, it's very hard to convey these counterfactuals, what would have happened had we not had Brexit. Um, and I think the easiest one to get across is look at other countries that are otherwise on a similar growth path to the UK and look at how much we are falling behind that. So, um, I mean, that will obviously be complicated if other countries have a very different disease path and profile from the UK going forward. But if we start to see other countries um, come to terms with COVID grow more strongly out of it. And at the same time, the UK seems to be languishing because Brexit is holding back um, growth. Then I think that is one of the ways that it would be easiest to tell the story of what impact Brexit is having on the UK economy. Um, uh, sorry, I forget the second part of your question. Comparative impact of COVID economically. Oh, yes. So I I think, oh, Ben's probably more into this, and I, I think part of that is about the structure of the UK economy. So we're very services heavy, and it's the services sector that has to a large extent been continued to be more constrained than some of the other like manufacturing sectors, I think is part of what's going on with that. Just on the, the question of kind of what is the what is the evidence that will allow us to understand what economic effect Brexit has. I, mean, I think one thing we often see with changes in trade policy is that they can have much bigger kind of compositional effects than aggregate effects, uh, by which I mean that there are often particular sectors or particular types of firm that are big losers as a, as, as a result of changes in trade policy. And if we do start to see that, I think that, you know, that will create, you know, obvious examples and case studies which drive home what effect Brexit is happening. If, you know, for example, in the event of no deal, we see over the next few years a gradual kind of disappearance of the UK car industry, that would be a very, you know, easy to understand example of, you know, how Brexit is having uh, negative effects. So I think there's there potentially as Brexit becomes a reality, will be stories to be told about, you know, here are the people, here are the farmers, or here are the firms that are really losing out. And I think that will help people to understand uh, the longer run consequences. And I should remind viewers that Patrick Minford did, in the early stages of this debate, say that British manufacturing was a price worth paying for leaving the European uh, Union. So it wouldn't be entirely unexpected to have an impact. Meredith. Well, sorry, I was just going back to the, the previous point about why is it that the forecast is, is so dire for Britain relative to other countries. And so I think one of the things that, you know, the IMF just came out with updated forecasts and it revised upward its forecast for Britain in 2020. So earlier it was reporting, you know, an expected loss in GDP over the year of 10.2% and they cut that. So now the loss is only going to be 9.8%. So I think some of where Britain is doing so poorly relative to some of these other economies is actually just the backward measure of what happened in the first half of this year. So where everything is looking a little less dire than maybe it did back in June, um, we still got 
hit particularly badly because of the very rapid, you know, growth of the virus here um, that, you know, wasn't contained. So I think some of this is sort of a backward looking effect. Can, I, can any, I mean, what, what are the main economic opportunities that come out of Brexit? Uh, this, this government maintains that there are things we will be able to do that we couldn't do beforehand or do more easily now that we couldn't do beforehand. Can any of you point to those, any of those that will have significant aggregate impacts? Everyone's still muted. <laughs> um. My, my, my personal view is that none of the opportunities Brexit create will have significant positive aggregate impacts. There doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that there aren't new opportunities. Obviously, the UK will be able to structure its own trade policy in a way it couldn't before. And for example, a, if it was able to reach a deal with the US, that would likely have some benefit, but it would be relatively small. I mean, the government's own numbers put it at about maybe 0 0.2, 0.3% of, of GDP. And, you know, after the EU, the US is our biggest trade partner. So other countries are going to have even smaller effects. So I think most, most of the areas where Brexit creates new opportunities, even in a kind of optimistic reading, the potential benefits of those are small. Meredith and Ben? Um, I also want to say, I think that some of this was a miscalculation on the gov government's part in terms of where the opportunities would lie. And so I think, for example, if you look at the government's assessment of the UK-US free trade agreement and which sectors are likely to experience growth and which sectors in the UK were likely to experience contraction, I think one of the surprising findings in the government's report was actually that UK exports of services would decline through a free trade agreement with the US. So that's the, the expected long-term impact. And I think many who looked at you know, UK services thought, oh, well, if we leave the EU, we'll have a lot more freedom to negotiate better services agreements and that will allow the services exports of the UK to expand. But when you get down into the nitty gritty of looking at an actual potential trading partner like the US, and you do your general equilibrium analysis, what was come, you know, what's come out is actually, this isn't really, there may be a little bit of opportunity to have more discretion over how you set up the policy, but actually setting a different policy is not really that beneficial. Um, so I think there's a miscalculation there. Yeah, yeah I think there's actually a consensus forming uh, amongst economists and also actually among political parties that the big economic problems of this country relate to low investment, uh, regional imbalances, low productivity growth. None of those things, as far as I can see, um, are helped. Well, the, the, none of them are, are a result of membership of the EU. And leaving the EU doesn't help us address any of them. Um, to the extent that Brexit opens up, opens up opportunities, it's in a way, it's, an, it's an sort of freeing up politicians to, to focus on those um, mm. long-term, big structural issues. You know, and this is... You're seeing this in you see if you look at some of the practical proposals in the Labour manifesto in 2019 and also what the Conservatives are planning now on levelling up and increasing investment, uh, etc. They are all in that same area. It's not Brexit related. It's policy related. I think that's that's the uh, key. 
But is it Brexit related in the sense that, albeit it's indirect, that the, the referendum and its outcome made us confront issues in our society and particularly in our economy that had been there for all to see for a long while before that referendum, but which policymakers simply didn't pay attention to or feel that they had to pay attention to before that vote? So in that sense, at least indirectly, it, you know, in a sense, it's forcing us to confront the problems we always faced in a more sort of rapid way. Well, not that anything's been done as yet, but at least to acknowledge them. Gemma? Yeah, I mean, I, I was just going to make that point that I, I think it has probably forced policymakers to confront some things that were easy to ignore before. But whether it's actually got us to a point of really positive, concrete policy change in any of those areas, I'm a bit less, I'm a bit more sceptical about. I think we're still seeing a lot of nice words being said, but not, we've, we've known for a long time these issues around uh, low skill levels around the country, lack of investment, poor quality public infrastructure. I'm not sure we've really moved much beyond identifying the problem to actually coming up with concrete policy solutions to it. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, want to think, think yeah, just very quickly, I mean, I think the opposite argument there is that, you know, Brexit is a distraction from dealing with these actual issues. We've spent the past four years where most of the energy and effort in UK politics has gone into debating Brexit so far to very little outcome. And, you know, that's energy that could have been spent addressing some of these more fundamental problems that have mostly been overlooked. I want to come back in a minute to an issue that a couple of people have raised and I think is important, which is what is the impact of huge levels of public debt and how will that get in the way of things like investment and when will it become a problem if it does? But for the moment, there's a really interesting question about the Overton window, which is being specifically targeted as, you know, has the Overton window moved enough for us to start thinking in realistic terms about a universal basic income? So that's that's the specific question. But more generally, uh, and this sort of feeds into what we were talking about before, is, is one of the things that the referendum has done just made us think a lot more creatively about the economy and a lot more critically about the sort of status quo in the economy. And, and are, are you confident that it's opening up possibilities for doing things uh, that we could have done before, but are going to do now as a result of it? Or is it the case, as Thomas says, that actually, for all the good intentions, there's so much else going on, we'll never get around to it. So do you think we will actually start to address some of these problems, and specifically the universal basic income, if any of you have any comments on that? Yep, just go, Ben. Yeah, I think um, it's funny enough, I'm doing a BBC Radio 4 thing on um, whether there'll be a long term legacy of the furlough system, which is a very, you know, uh, radical, uh, as Gemma was saying, thing that the government was effectively paying 80% of the wages of workers. Uh, you know, if, if, if in previous recessions, previous downturns, it's like, well, you go on the dole and you get job seekers allowance, uh, which is nowhere near 80%. And I think yeah. the fact that the Chancellor felt he had to implement that does suggest something about what he thought would be politically acceptable to, to you know millions of people and I just wonder and this is what this documentary is going to be looking into is whether that suggests there's a change in attitudes in the public about um, what the, the sort of the replacement weight of uh, the replacement rates of 
benefits, jobless benefits, and whether people want actually a more continental system. If you lose your job in Germany, in France and other places, you get you know, perhaps 80% of your previous salary. That looks a bit to me like the furlough system in many mm. ways. Is there maybe not a universal basic income? Because as we all know, that's, there's very, very serious problems there in terms of the affordability of it, or actually some people might see their, their, their benefits cut by a, a UBI that was affordable. But perhaps organically moving from the furlough to something more like a continental social insurance system, I can see that being more likely, maybe not probable, maybe not you know, overwhelmingly likely, but I think, I think the Everton window perhaps has been shifted in that direction. Actually, more broadly, the uh, Policy Institute at King's is just putting a survey out uh, which tries to tease out whether the experience with the furlough scheme and with lockdown has shifted attitudes towards state involvement in the economy more broadly as to whether we expect more of a safety and whether, we, you know, those attitudes have shifted. Uh, and so we'll be good to talk about that at some point. Meredith, you had your hand up. Um, so in terms of the where have we seen some changes in creativity um, and new thinking about policy, I think one of the areas to me that's been sort of interesting has been around agriculture and food and health and also sustainability. So um, there's a national food strategy project that's trying to develop what should Britain's national food strategy be. And I think, you know, a couple of things, COVID and the relationship between death and obesity has kind of brought that issue of obesity as a public health concern to the forefront at the same time that they're rethinking, you know, what's sustainable use of land in the UK and should, as we leave the common agricultural policy, you know, how should you compensate farmers for their land? Should they be paid to produce? Should they be paid to, you know, to store this land as a carbon sink? Should they be holding land in reserve to mitigate flood damage? So there's a lot of important things I think happening um, around thinking about those particular markets and should we think about how to change those markets and how they're organized um, in response to other societal goals that have sort of been sort of on the back burner for a while. Um, so, I mean, I sort of agree with Ben that I think this question of should there be an alternative um, type of social security system that provides some form of earnings replacement of benefits, uh, earnings replacement of income on benefits. Probably, I think it is going to be a question that will be posed. And I, I think the thing that the UK doesn't have that the other countries do is not that you get earnings replacement um, through the benefit system for a long period of time, but that you would for at least a period of weeks. And in a lot of countries, that's sort of a six month period get um, some benefits if you lose your job that replace a decent chunk of your earnings to kind of tide you over while you look for your next job. And I think COVID has kind of raised people's awareness that we can all face um, unexpected unemployment that really may not be through any fault of our own, but through, can be through macro shocks that you'll um, struggle to ensure yourself. So I think that will um, be posed as a question. I mean, the, the other things I think um, where COVID perhaps will uh, have lasting changes is around the changes to ways of working. Um, so uh, colleagues have looked at what sort of happened in some public services where you've seen things like a sudden big shift in GP appointments to doing those um, either over telephone or um, via video consultation. Um, those kind of changes should have happened before should continue to happen. And this has been the kind of the jolt that's been needed to kind of shock people's ways of working. And 
there are undoubtedly kind of similar changes that have happened in the private sector with people being able to work from home, being getting much more used to doing um, video meetings rather than traveling across the country to go and meet people in person or not meeting them in person. Um, and so I think all those things that could have changed before, but actually just being forced to try it out has probably made people realize that things are possible that they thought would have been a bit of a hassle before. And I suspect a lot of those will continue, um, but I'm sure particularly if things go back to normal more quickly, there'll be other elements of changes to our way of life that do um, dissipate and we'll go back to doing more what we were doing before. So I have to say any durable shift in working patterns in this house is going to hinge on a conversation about being allowed to turn the central heating on in the daytime. But uh, Thomas, were you wanting to uh, come in? Uh, I mean, to be honest, I would just kind of reinforce what I think uh, Gemma, Meredith and Ben have been saying that, you know, I think COVID and the disruptions it has caused are causing a fundamental rethinking of kind of how we work and of how much government involved we want in the economy. But at least at least so far, you know, those changes seem to have stemmed more from, from COVID than from Brexit. Just, just finally, because I don't think we can leave this without mentioning it. We spent the first sort of five, six years of the last decade being told that we'd reached unsustainable levels of public debt. We had to do something about the deficit. Otherwise, it would be, you know, an absolute nightmare for us going forward. We start this decade with, you know, eye-watering levels of public debt and everyone seems strangely relaxed about it. Why? Well, I think in a, in a nutshell, it's because interest rates are even lower than they were coming out of the last crisis. Uh, the RMF uh, made this point um, in its new uh, fiscal monitor that, um, yes, debt levels are up and going up very, very rapidly, but we are advanced countries that print their own currencies are much more able to, to deal with those debt burdens uh, because the cost of servicing them is so low. And um, the key now, uh, as 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 the IMF was the point it was making, is this key is to go for growth, invest. Don't be concerned about these uh, debt and deficit levels. The key is to look at the uh, denominator, not the numerator. Uh, this, you know, debt share of GDP. Look at the GDP part of the uh, of that. Uh, equation rather than the debt part and go for growth and i think that's the fundamental message that's coming from most economists at the moment i'm sorry i can't resist but why wasn't that the case in 2010 when interest rates weren't that high well people thought that maybe interest rates would go up very rapidly i mean that's the generous case the the, the, le the less generous case is that people perhaps saw an opportunity to shrink the size of the state to get rid of all this social spending that they didn't like uh, but yes, the generous case would be that people didn't know at that time that interest rates were, were going to keep going down and stay low indefinitely. There were a few hands. Does anyone else want to... Gemma? I mean, so I agree with everything Ben said, and I, I think the reason the state changed is we've learned something over the last 10 years um, about how things um, evolve. But I mean, I think the... The difficulty is not necessarily the higher level of debt because of the reasons that Ben outlined and the IMF have talked about. Um, that could be sustainable if you can get sufficiently high growth um, and if debt interest costs remain low. The problem for the UK and any other country is if we come out of this with a sustained higher level of annual public borrowing, and there is a point at which your annual borrowing is sufficiently large that you are no longer on a 
sustainable debt path and you can end up on an unsustainable debt path. And if we looked at the projections pre-COVID for the UK public finances, thinking about the extra pressures that are likely to come from social care spending and health spending in particular, the UK was on an unsustainable debt path. We've now been pushed up a level. Um, if you add on to that any sort of long-term higher public spending legacy of COVID, either because people want the state to do more for them coming out the other side of COVID or because we have lingering additional health costs and the like, um, that would probably worsen that profile. And so I, I wouldn't be quite so sanguine about the UK's ability to simply come out the other side of this without needing any kind of um, fiscal adjustment. There are curious parallels with our debate about the central heating here, but anyway, Thomas, were you going to wanted to come in? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I fully agree with the points Ben makes, and uh, you know, if we can, if we can go for for growth, we can shrink the the debt burden in that way. The concern has to be though that we, you know, I think we do not know as much as we would like to about what are the actual policies the government could implement that would create higher growth. I mean, in particular, the, the last decade since the financial crisis, even before Brexit, has been a horrible decade for the UK economy. There has been very little productivity growth. And if we knew exactly what the magic bullet was that would, would change that, you can bet that you know, politicians of all stripes would be trying to, to implement that policy. So the, kind of the, the question then becomes, if we are going to go for growth, what are the policies that would uh, achieve that and historically uh, the kind of British state has done fairly poorly at promoting productivity growth in the, the UK you know output per hour work has been below our kind of comparable continental economies for, for decades and it's not obvious that that's likely to change in the near future. Meredith you get the final word. I was just going to say I think um we don't, as you know, Ben said, we don't need to be so worried about the level of public debt because interest rates are low, but we perhaps should be worrying about the very, very low interest rates as well as the negative interest rates. So, you know, one of the new things that's coming out is that the short end of the term of term structure, we're now looking at monetary policy with negative rates. And so essentially, you know, the Bank of England is going to be charging banks that leave money that they're in the Bank of England that they're not lending out to private businesses. And so the real problem is, you know, at these very low rates, it should be that, you know, banks are putting out money to businesses. But as Thomas is saying, we don't really know how to identify. It's not just the government can identify where to make the investments, but it seems like the banking sector is having a hard time identifying where there are valuable investments to be made. And so one of the risks here is that with these negative interest rates, we can end up in a situation like Japan where we just go through a real long period of stagnant growth. And so that's that's sort of the, the kind of darker side. So low interest rates mean that we don't have to worry about public debt too much in the right now, but maybe we should be worrying about the low interest rates that are allowing us to, to have that low level that have those high levels of public debt. Brilliant, thank you. All I can say by way of praise is you've booked yourself a return visit, I think, to do this again in the spring, if you're all amenable. Uh, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you to our audience for your questions. I apologize for not getting through them all. Uh, for those of you who are interested, our next event is going to be on the 3rd of November. And if that date rings a bell, yes, it is the day of the US election. And we have a lunchtime panel on what the election might mean for transatlantic 
relations. So I do hope we'll see most, if not all of you at that. And for the moment, thanks so much to our panel. That was really, really interesting. And we could have gone on for another hour quite happily, but I'll let you go and have some lunch instead. Thank you all very much.